0: Well, good morning, church. If you haven't figured it out already, I'm not Daniel. Uh, I've got a little bit more hair on my head and a little less hair on my face. That's, that's how you can tell. Now, if you don't know me, my name's Ben. Um, my wife, Megan, is running sound, and we've been attending the Mountain Church for the last six years. We moved back from Europe in 2016, where we were serving with a church plant there, and uh, Peter invited us to come check out the church he was going to and thank you Peter for inviting us. We've been here since then. I'm really thankful to be preaching to you today. This is, as Carrie said, the first time that I've been able to preach, but God has put a message on my heart and and I'm I think I'm especially thankful because as I've been preparing, as I've been studying, I've come to realize that I have I've there's so much left that um that remains. I haven't scratched the surface with my own personal relationship with the Father and the richness and the the compassion and the kindness that He has towards us. Um, and so this passage points us to reengage or engage with the source of our life. And you know we can devote ourselves to that to that communion to that union with with God, and then communicate that same to others. So if you have your Bibles, and if you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to join me in turning to Colossians chapter 4 that our friend Carrie just read. Thank you, Carrie. I cannot believe that we're almost to the end of this book. We're eight weeks in, and uh, just one week left, unless Daniel decides to throw a curveball at us. Um, But by way of reminder, or if you haven't been with us up to this point, the book of Colossians is all about Christ. It's all about the supremacy and the deity of Christ and and our union with him, really. So at the beginning of this letter, after a brief greeting, Paul presents Jesus as as the preeminent being, the creator of all, the reason for its creation, the heir, the H-E-I-R, the uh, the one who it all belongs to, and also the, lovely, the loving redeemer of creation. And then Paul says in chapter 1, verse 19, that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Jesus is fully God. This is a mighty and awesome and, and wonderful being that Paul is presenting as, as the preeminent one in the universe that deserves all our, our praise and our worship. All the honor. And then Paul continues in, in chapter 1, verse 21, that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And a little later in chapter 2, he says, you have been filled in him. So he speaks of a transformation that Christ has enacted in us. And while it may not be fully realized yet, the transformation that we have been reconciled to Christ has already occurred in the believer. And that phrase in him or in Christ that we've seen come up again and again, in using this phrase, Paul is, is, um, is capturing the essence of the believer's unity with Christ. So Paul first presents Jesus as the preeminent being, and then he makes this remarkable claim that we who, are, who were God's enemies have now been united with and in Christ. And this union is so complete that effectively what happens to Christ happens to us. Jesus' death becomes our death. Jesus' life and his, his righteousness becomes our life and righteousness. We who were once dead in our sin have been united together with Christ. And so for the rest of the book, Paul turns to explore the practical implications of what this looks like in our daily life. What does it look like to live out of our union with Christ? He says in chapter 2 verse 6, "Therefore as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him." And we notice the the cause and effect or the order of action here. Christ's action leads to our action. It's not that we do because we're trying to, um, to gain Christ's favor. Rather, we do because we have Christ's favor already resting upon us. And so he says in this verse, chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And that theme of thanksgiving is gonna come up in our passage again today as Paul begins to wrap up the letter. So moving into chapter three, we saw Daniel preach a couple weeks ago where Paul showed us that to be in Christ looks like taking off, like, like dirty clothes, the characteristics and traits that characterize our former sinful self. Things like anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk, lying and division. And to put on instead the character traits and qualities of Christ, like compassion and kindness, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord in Christ has forgiven us. And above all these, we're supposed to put on love, which binds all together in perfect harmony, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then, Last week, we, looked, we zoomed in with Paul as he looked at specific relationships, the family and the workplace, the areas of our life we spend the most time. We looked at the husband and wife relationship, and we looked at what it looks like in the parent and child relationship as well as we explore what it means to live out of this union with Christ. And then we also looked at the employer-employee relationship. And so here we find ourselves at the beginning of the last chapter, where Paul is zooming out from looking at the specific roles, and he's now once again addressing the whole church, all believers. He's wrapping up his thoughts on what it looks like to live this life out of union with Christ, and he's also beginning his preparation of closing the book. Right after this comes the the final greetings where Paul says hi to certain people. Uh, We want to say hi to you and you. And so um, wraps up this book. But before he wraps it up, he gives a call to the church for prayer and for mission. We are in Christ, which means we're moving in the same direction as Christ. We're to have the same flavor to the world as Christ. And so in a sense, Paul is returning to the foundational elements of faith in this passage, As in, not out of a sense of, of duty that we engage in mission or we engage in prayer, but out of a sense of this overflow of what Christ has accomplished for us and the position that we now have. And Paul is asking the Colossians to partner with him in these things. So let's, let's look at our text. Chapter 4, starting in verse 2, Paul is calling the Colossians to consistent, persistent, devoted, personal prayer. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There are really three parts to this exhortation. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, and with thanksgiving. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time with this verse in particular today because I believe that this is fundamental to our experience of this union with Christ that Paul has spent this letter encouraging us to recognize and live into. So let's take a look at these exhortations. The first is to continue in prayer or to continue steadfastly in prayer. Other translations say, devote yourselves to prayer. The way Paul understood his life and ministry was that it was all because of and for and to Christ. It wasn't of his own power or merit that he had any righteousness of his own, or that he could even accomplish his mission. It was on Christ's strength. Paul and his ministry relied on Christ just as Jesus modeled when he was on the earth. Paul knew he needed to pray if he wanted to have any success in his ministry. Jesus frequently took time out of his day to pray, especially in the mornings, to spend quiet conversation with the Father. He would go rise early and go out by himself to pray. He knew that he needed this connection with the Father if he was going to have his, to be effective in his ministry for the day. And if Jesus, being God, relied on this connection with the Father for his own strength, how much more do we as imperfect sinners need to be connected to the source of our life just to make it through the day. Perhaps one of the most memorable moments of Jesus praying is in the garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested and ultimately crucified. If you'll turn with me to the gospel of Mark chapter 14, <clears throat> if you don't have your Bible it should be on the screen. Mark records, and starting in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so, in great distress, Jesus casts himself at the feet of the Father in prayer. And Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, writes in such a way that shows us that prayer is not just for ministry, not just in great distress but that this experience of inexpressible and glorious joy is normal in Christian prayer. It's not for some just some folks that have special degrees or advanced spirituality. He's saying that this glorious joy is a normal experience in the life of believers like you and I. And so we've seen, and this is certainly not an exhausted, exhaustive list, but we've seen in these few passages that for sustenance, for ministry, for grief, and when we're in deep distress, and also for overwhelming joy, that we have a compassionate Father in heaven who hears and answers our prayer. And in all those circumstances and situations, Hopefully it doesn't keep doing... I'm going to switch mics if it keeps doing that. Um, in all of those circumstances and situations, we must pray. I'm not saying must in the sense that, um, you know, to be a good Christian, you must pray. Maybe, maybe that's some of our experiences growing up in church where the, um, the application always seems to be pray more or read your Bible more. And that's not the sense in which I mean this, the sense in which I mean we must pray is not out of obligation or fear or shame or guilt, but out of a sense that if I don't, if I don't connect with the source and sustainer of my life, I'm going to fall apart. It's like a, a medicine that stays a fatal disease. If I take the medicine I prolong my life. But if I fail to take that medicine, I die. I must take that medicine. In the same way with prayer, I must pray. I must, in being devoted to prayer, be connected to the author of life. And to be devoted to prayer is to understand that without this connection to the Father, I have no life at all. My life depends on him. Praise God that he is gracious with us though. Amen. Because who among us can say that we pray enough and who among us has plunged into the depth of prayer and has ever found the bottom? I'll tell you one thing that's absolutely encouraging to me as I've been setting this passage is that Christ prays perfectly. And by God's grace, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we are in Christ which means Christ's perfect prayer counts on our behalf. His perfect prayer is given to us. So we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to feel guilty. Christ has accomplished what we could not. Amen. Oh, that we would be a people of prayer, that we would have that relationship like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two, where they walked and they talked with God. Tim Keller drew my attention to the words of a Scottish theologian, John Murray. He had some words on prayer. He said this, it is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith of living union and communion with the exalted and ever present redeemer. He communes with his people and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. Communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion, he said. Prayer is how we commune with God. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they prayed over and over. The Israelites prayed The prophets prayed, the kings prayed, David, uh, or the book of Psalms is a collection of songs and prayers from David and others. There's a consistent theme through scripture of people praying and God answering. Paul sets an example of prayer at the beginning of this letter to the Colossians where he opens with prayer and thanksgiving. He said in, in verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And then just a few verses later from the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you. And he goes on for five more verses in just a prayer for the Colossians. There's a real need to pray. We have a real felt need to pray. Tim Keller pointed out in his book on prayer, which by the way, I, I would recommend if you want to dive into this deeper. Right? I found it very helpful as I um, processed this myself. Um, he He said, or he pointed out that prayer seems to be a common denominator, even with all, all the rest of the world religions. Even studies have shown that atheists often pray. They might not have a clear sense of who they're praying to or why. But I think this, that it's almost as if the need for prayer is baked into our, our essence as human beings, maybe our, our human DNA, And I think this universal experience of this need for prayer is part of God's common grace, which ultimately points us back to him, points us to the need for connection to him and his desire for relationship with us. The real need for prayer stems from our real need for connection with God, to have communion with him. It goes far beyond prayer requests, although it's not less than that. God certainly works through our prayer requests to accomplish what he wants to do. But this call to devotion to prayer beckons us to a life of communion with God connected to the source. And we've seen Paul has communicated this, this theme of being united with Christ. We are in Christ. And this is not a new concept. It's the very thing Jesus was saying in John 15, where he called us to abide in Christ, to abide in him. This passage helps us to see what that looks like, what abiding in Christ looks like. It it looks like being devoted to prayer, communing with God. And praise God, all glory be to Christ because none of us could have gained this standing with the Father on our own. We would have been instantly killed in front of a great and holy God without Jesus's intervention on our behalf. Jesus has made a way for us to have this relationship. Our sin is too terrible for us to make this on our own. Prayer is the means with which or in which we experience union with Christ. Prayer is both intelligent and mystic. And in other words, prayer, we engage our minds when we pray. We pray for specific things but there's also an, a sense in which it's mystic and, and mysterious. It's relational and emotional and experiential. There's, I think, in our tradition of faith, a tendency to move away from the experiential and more into the, um, the doctrinal or intellectual um, elements of prayer. And I, I know for me that I tend to veer away from the... Um, the mystic and, and toward what I would consider as the more concrete or definable elements of prayer i as I've been thinking and processing through this, I think it's because I feel uncomfortable with the way that um, that some churches do it where they where it's all experiential, and so almost as a reaction i I kind of come back to this, but as i've been thinking about this, it's like why does this make me feel uncomfortable and I think it's because it doesn't fit inside this box, this neat little box that I have for what, what prayer should look like. But if if one of the key purposes of prayer is to facilitate my relationship with the Father, then my desire to control amounts to selfish idolatry because it really means that I'm seeking to control God. I'm seeking to control, at the very least, my relationship with God. I'm not suggesting that we should ignore or lay aside the, the intellectual or doctrinal elements of prayer. But somehow biblical prayer is both. Biblical prayer is both intelligent and mystical. Again, God is gracious. Gracious. He has made us alive together in Christ. He has united us in Christ so that Christ's perfect prayer, Christ's perfect relationship with the Father is given to us. And Jesus says when we abide in Christ through prayer, it leads to full and overflowing joy. If that isn't experiential, I don't know what is. As I've studied this passage and probed this topic of prayer, I've come to realize, like I said earlier, that I've I've barely scratched the surface with what the Bible calls me to in prayer. There is richness and fullness of joy in devoting ourselves to prayer. And and church, today I want to extend the call to you to to be a person that is devoted to prayer. So the first part of of Paul's exhortation in this verse that we've seen is to continue steadfastly in prayer. To be devoted to personal communion with God. Abide in the source of your life and in your union with Christ. The second exhortation that we see Paul give is to be watchful in prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. There really is a lot in the Bible about prayer, instructions, examples, and many people have written many pages and many pastors have preached many sermons on prayer And I do, I think there's a lot of value in studying and trying different methods of prayer. There's contemplative prayer, there's centering prayer, there's different acronyms that you can use when we pray. There's pre-written prayers, praying through scripture, or uh, there's that book, The Valley of Vision that Daniel has presented in the past that has Puritan prayers written out that kind of we can pray through and it expands our mind on, on what to pray for. But of all the things that Paul could have used, all the characteristics of prayer that Paul could have chosen to include here in this call to prayer, he chooses two, and the first is watchfulness. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Is this the once and for all statement that we don't have to close our eyes anymore when we pray? What are we watching for? How are we supposed to watch? You know, this isn't the first time that watch has been used with prayer. Pray and watch have been used together before. Remember what Jesus said to Peter back in the passage in Mark that we read earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, remain here and watch. And then when he came back after Jesus prayed, this is after what we read, he came back and he found them sleeping and he woke them up and he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it seems to me like that part of the reason for Paul, including this this exhortation here, this watchfulness, is to exhort the Colossians that they may not be tempted or swayed by the false teachers that that are coming into their midst. They're jockeying for their attention. And this does fit with how this these two phrases are, are connected together in, in other parts of Scripture. Commentators also suggested that this watchfulness fits in with the, with the call to continue in prayer and the call to thankfulness that he says just a few words later in the verse. That there's this natural rhythm of, of laying our requests before the Father, watching for what God does in answer to those prayers, and then being thankful for what he does. Finally, it seems with respect to watchfulness that we're to be alert for what our brothers and sisters are going through, what we can be praying for each other. And I, I see this in verse three, as Paul continues to ask specifically for prayer for himself and for ministry. So there's an element of praying for each other and being watchful for what we can. So we have a continual prayer, a posture of prayer that moves with a sense of watchfulness. Watchfulness what God has done and what God is doing in our lives and those around us. And also watchfulness against temptation that could be creeping into our lives. And, and none of us are above this. It's it's very easy for us to be swayed or, um, or or to to lose our focus on on some philosophy that sounds right, but is counter to the gospel. And there's... Also a sense to be watchful for the needs of our brothers and sisters, that we might intercede for each other just as Christ intercedes for us. And the Holy Spirit groans to the Father and groaning too deep for words. So we're both to be alive to the will of God and the need of the world. I think one of the most exciting things we can pray for is for our eyes to see what God is doing around us. After I finished uh, my, my school, Uh, Megan and I went and lived in Europe. And we, for the first six months or so, we lived in Hungary. We attended uh, a Bible school and took a semester of Bible classes. But as the semester was wrapping up, we knew it was time for us to uh, move somewhere else. And we were praying that God would open our eyes to see what God was doing, that He might move us to a place where we could clearly see that God was already working and that we might join on the front line, so to speak, uh, with, with participating in something that God was already doing. And I think this is a prayer that God delights to answer. He likes to share himself with us, to share what he's doing with us. In fact, that's the whole reason he created us in the first place was out of an overflow of the love that he had in the Trinity to share that love with us. Well, God brought Megan and I to a city in Western Ukraine And it was amazing to show up and immediately see that God was working. People were getting saved every week. And for a stretch, people were getting saved every day while we were there. It was absolutely astonishing to see what God did. This wasn't a uh, large gathering. It It was this church plant in Ukraine was half the size of those gathered here, certainly with much fewer resources than we have but there were people that were were seeking to reach people who are lost. It was a ministry that was saturated with prayer, reliance on God. And God was choosing to use this small body of believers to bring his kingdom to this city in Western Ukraine. We prayed for God to open our eyes and to show us the work that he was doing. And he delighted to answer that prayer and to be quite honest with you, it changed my life. It changed our lives. Thirdly, the, de- the other defining characteristic of prayer that Paul mentions in this verse is, is thankfulness. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This has been a theme through this whole book that as we've been going through. Paul opened with a prayer of thanksgiving, giving thanks for the Colossians' belief and love and hope and we see as we look at Paul's other letters that this is a fairly typical posture of that Paul takes when he begins a letter that he's thankful for God's grace as it goes out into the church and he's thankful for people experiencing the grace of God. At the beginning of the letter Paul expanded on the constant on the content of his constant prayer. He said we do not cease pre- cease praying on your behalf. And now just before he wraps up the letter he's coming back to this idea of prayer. He he invites the Colossians to join him in thankfulness, to, to have the posture of thankfulness toward God for what he's doing in their lives and what he's doing through their prayer as they adore God, as they confess their sins, as they worship him, as they intercede for others and pray for the things that matter in their daily lives. They're being watchful for what, it, what God is doing and being thankful. One commentator pointed out that prayer and thanksgiving can never be disassociated from each other in the Christian life. He said that remembrance of former mercies not only produces spontaneous praise and worship, it also is a powerful incentive to renewed believing prayer. Our prayers are, are to have a posture of thankfulness that acknowledges that it's God who has given us all we need. He has provided. He has changed our hearts. He has given us a new identity and a new purpose. He has brought us into unity with Christ and others. Gratitude fights against pride. It is difficult to both acknowledge that... um, that everything good, everything meaningful has come from a source outside of ourselves and to still maintain a pride in our sense of accomplishment when we recognize it's really not our doing at all. So we've seen Paul's call to be devoted to prayer, to be watchful and to be thankful. And I know that we've spent a considerable amount of time on this first verse. But like I said earlier, I've I've focused so much attention here because I, I do truly see that, that this seems to be the main way that we experience the union with Christ that is so central to this passage. And in the next few verses, Paul invites the Colossians not only to internalize this, but to act and speak in such a way that that, that is presented to the unbelievers around them. And again, it starts with prayer. Look at verse three with me. Paul asks specifically for prayer in his ministry. At the same time, he says, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So, in the same way, church, I think there's a call here to be praying for our pastor, to be praying for our local community, the ministry of our local church, and also for ministry and missionaries, excuse me, that travel to other places to spread the word. It really is one of the most important and meaningful things that we can do to support Pastor Daniel as he leads this church. You know, it's not because of Daniel's strength that he was called here to, to plant this church. And it's because of God's strength. And... Because of that, we can come alongside in a truly meaningful way in prayer. But let's look a little closer at what Paul is actually asking for prayer for in this verse. He says that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Notice what this open door is for. It's for the word. Paul has an active role here, but... He is not the agent of change. The word is. The word is the active agent in evangelism. Jesus, the word made flesh, is the one that has the power to save. It's always been Jesus. Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word is the key component in evangelism and in ministry. The word is the active agent. Jesus is what defines success in evangelism. And in fact, in Revelation 3, he says to the church in Philadelphia, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So it's Jesus who provides opportunities for us to share the gospel. And we have a call to pray for this, to pray for obstacles to be removed, to pray for hindrances to be uh, taken away, for opportunities for successful evangelism and for clarity of the gospel. Praying for opportunities where Paul or Daniel or you or I can make this mystery of Christ plain. The mystery of Christ to share the good news that Jesus has come to take our place in judgment and give us his righteousness, that others would respond believe and experience this communion with God, this communion with Christ and this fellowship with the father. One time when we were in Ukraine, we were doing an event in the city center. We had PA speakers set up and there was some music playing. Um, and we had some people doing art and then somebody would get up and share the gospel. We had groups of people scattered kind of throughout the plaza area and they were just praying, praying for the people who might stop by, um, and as the afternoon turned into evening, a woman walking by stopped to listen. She was moved to tears. And so a group of students went over to pray for her and and um, see what they could do. Um, we found out that she was actually on her way to commit suicide. And that she had stopped and heard the gospel in this very moment. And the next day, when... Uh, a group of, of us were praying at the church. It wasn't an organized prayer gathering. We didn't schedule it, we were just going to pray for some of the people who we had met the previous day. And as they started praying for this woman, you're never going to believe who walked in the doors of this church. The, the church is not close to where we were. But as my friend Tolik was praying for this woman, he had his eyes closed and he continued praying as she walked into the building. And it was like this where there's one, one main room. And so she walked in and joined this prayer gathering. He was still praying for her. He didn't know he'd walked in and she gave her life to the Lord. God saved her not only physically, but he opened a door for the word and the word transformed her. Praise God. God is working in this city too. He's working in Des Moines and Federal Way and Kent and SeaTac, Taquila, Burien. Let's pray for the gospel to be clearly communicated all around these cities, in our high schools, on our football fields and baseball diamonds, in our churches. As one pastor said, God, uh, prayer is not just going to God with our wish list, it's God's way of enlisting us to pray for what He wants to do. Or to put it another way, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. So let's be people of prayer that rely on God, that depend on God and pray for the clear gospel message to be spread through our community into the world. And so as Paul asks for prayer and evangelism and ministry, he also invites the Colossian believer to take part in this, to take to partake in the joy of evangelism in verses five and six. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It is interesting that Jesus does the same thing in Luke chapter 10. He instructs his his disciples to pray for workers to be sent out to herald the good news. The coming kingdom. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Do you know what Jesus does in the very next verse? He sends those people out to be those workers. Those that were instructed to pray for that very thing, 72 of them were sent out in pairs into different towns and villages. So don't be surprised if as you start to pray for the clear communication of the gospel, if your own heart starts to change toward this and and God begins to give you a call to share the wonderful news of Jesus and what he's done for us. I'd like to close today with the three exhortations that Paul gives to the Colossians in verses five and six regarding our conduct toward unbelievers. And most of us are around unbelievers so often that this is really a call to what our daily life should look like. But he says, walk in wisdom, redeem the time, and let your speech be gracious. Church, as an outflow of our our unity with Christ, of our communion with the Father, we want our actions to reflect the reality of our being united with Christ. We want this to be an outward expression of that relationship. The call to walk in in wisdom is really a call to act in such a way that our actions reflect Christ. The phrase uh, "WWJD" What would Jesus do? was popular when I was a kid, and I remember people wearing the those WWJD bracelets that uh, they were supposed to help people to stop and and you know ask that question before you would do an uh, an action. Um, But this call to walk in wisdom is literally be wise in the way you act, to stop and think, to consider others before you do something. N.T. Wright said, to walk in wisdom means to follow Christ as God's pattern for full and authentic human living. Let's act in such a way that unbelievers see our conduct and, and recognize that something is different about us. Let's love and pray and take care of each other in such a way that this city sees that and asks what is different. Blameless life lays the foundation for gracious witness. The exhortation to make the best use of time or or literally to redeem the time is a call for us to make the most of every opportunity that's given to us even as we've been praying that God would open a door for the word, you know, the idea here has a sense of urgency to it, not dissimilar from uh, like a sale that's about to run out. You remember the, the old jingle from the Bon Marche one day only at the Bon Marche, you know, it has this, this sense that we're supposed to, you know, get down there quick before, you know, before the sale runs out or, or, or if you're, you know, camping out on Black Friday, right, before the, I, I'm not sure any of us does this anymore, but maybe some of you still do. Um, I certainly did a couple of times when I was in college and had uh, no life. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> um, you, <laughs> you there's this sense that, you know, you've got to get down there before, the time runs out before this, the item that you want is bought up. <laughs> the, this call here to, um, to redeem the time is that when, when God gives us opportunities to witness, take a hold of them. Don't be afraid. God will give you the strength that you need. It's an opportunity to tell of the goodness, the gentleness, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He will give you the strength that you need to, to take advantage of that. And it, again, it's not, it's not like it's out of duty. Like I have to share the gospel with, with somebody or else I'm not a good Christian. It's an overflow of this union that we have with Christ that we are happy of our and our position in Christ. And so we want to share that experience with others. And then finally, Paul calls us to have gracious speech seasoned with salt. In other words, we are to speak in a way that reflects the gentle and lowly nature of Christ. In the same way that Paul instructed fathers a a few paragraphs earlier, just we talked about it last week, do not be harsh with your children. So in, in the same way here, he's calling for the nature of the way we talk. To be gracious, and there's a little bit of a play on words because he's also saying that the content of our speech should be uh, should be full of grace. That we should talk about God's grace often. But if we're argument, are you, Excuse me. If we're argumentative, or rude, or brash, or inconsiderate, especially when we're speaking with unbelievers, even if we're sharing the gospel, we're liable to do more harm than good. Our tone of voice should reflect Christ's graciousness to us. We should be thoughtful of who we're speaking to. This can be be hard, intense situations. This can be hard when our emotions are flooded. But brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. This is our identity that Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf. We can come to the Father in prayer because Jesus has torn the veil Jesus has broken the barrier that stood between us and the Father. And our posture of thankfulness comes from recognizing that in a very real way, He has made a way for us to partake in the love and the joy that He has and He shares. And then to share that experience with others. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you have brought us into right relationship with you. Thank you that we are in Christ, that you have accomplished that union by the blood of your son, Jesus. May we be a people that is devoted to prayer, watchful for what you are doing around us and for the needs of those around us, that we can serve and lift them up in prayer. May we be marked by gratitude for all of this. make us a blessing to our communities, that we might conduct our lives in a way that reflects you. We might speak in a way that makes our neighbors and friends notice something different about us. Give us opportunities for the word. Open our eyes to see what you are doing in our communities. We praise you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.